If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go! Welcome everyone. Today's show is about the first steps or foundation that must be in place to simply get in the game of customer equity acceleration. These first steps map to the same foundations as digital maturity as we've discussed in the early maturity curve show. And to help me discuss what this is and why you should care, I'm here with Lauren Hadley, the VP of Customer Journey and Optimization at Ambition Data. Welcome Lauren. Tell us a little bit about your work at Ambition Data. Hey, good morning, Allison. Yeah, at Ambition Data, I had the opportunity to work with executives and practitioners to connect the dots and try to really develop their capabilities in leveraging data. To me, it's gratifying to see them make strides understanding their customers and serving them better while moving their businesses forward. And I personally enjoy being able to explore a variety of business models, industries, tech stacks, data cultures. It really keeps things interesting and um, makes me continually think about where we're headed and how we're going to get there. Yeah, I like that about consulting, too. It's definitely an industry for the curious, (laughs) no doubt. So thank you. I, you know, when I think about the foundations of customer equity, I think about it like a kitchen to create value or even see customer value in the first place. You need the right equipment. And I sometimes think about how my husband, when we were dating, he made macaroni and cheese in a hotel coffee pot. <laughs> not exactly the ideal tool. <laughs> so that's not the most efficient way to cook for sure. And if I were cooking up data, I'd hate to be doing it with a coffee pot. Let's say that I'm cooking on a camp stove. Lauren, why should I care if I'm cooking on a camp stove? All right. First off, I don't want to disparage camp stoves because I've made some great meals while we were camping. But (laughs) it's not something that I would want to do on a large scale. If I'm cooking at home, I've got counter space. I've got my full range of knives and utensils. I've got running water. But when I'm cooking on a camp stove, I'm generally cut off from all of that preparatory stuff. So I have to do a lot of the prep work ahead of time. The other factor is scale. We've got two basic burners there um, with kind of limited capacity. At home, I've got four burners and an oven to work with. If you were in a commercial kitchen, you'd have the full range of um, burners, fryers, grills. Yes. Mm. Um, So if I think about um, trying to serve a restaurant crowd on a camp stove, I think we're all going to be disappointed. Here's an example of uh, moving from camp stoves to commercial kitchens in the actual digital world. For a number of years, I had the opportunity to work with a Fortune 100 client who was moving through a digital transformation. Mm. We started out helping their direct-to-consumer team start to utilize data. Now, we built a series of reports that were customized for each of those groups, curated data that answered the types of business questions that they were really looking at. 
then over time, we enhanced each of those as each of the groups got more adept at using the data. Mm-hmm. That was really our camping, uh, cooking on a camp stove phase. We were using Excel and data connectors to pull in and process and display the data. It was effective. It was appropriate for the time. But it really was sort of our, our food cart stage. Mm-hmm. Then eventually, as we built these out in a number of areas, we found that the uh, number and complexity of the reports was becoming challenging to manage. Each time that there was an update, a change in the system, it required massive amounts of labor to go back through and find all the places where that was touched and fix that in the Excel systems. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I don't think people realize how much time goes into things like connecting data behind a report. That's a really big hurdle for most people. It is, and the fact that you know you think of data as being fairly static, but in my experience, you find that it, it really shifts a lot, that it doesn't take much for somebody to add new variables in, change variables out, shift the name a little bit, and at that point, you know, it becomes a real bear to try to go back through and, and make sure that everything is still running smoothly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were at the camp stove yeah. stage, and then you started to move up into a more advanced or better equipment. What happened next? Yeah, so the client decided to fund a major initiative shifting to a single system that would combine all of these reports into one suite of Tableau-based reports that would serve the whole company. So, you know, essentially, if we were at the food cart stage then, we were going to move into full restaurant mode. We were adding state-of-the-art data prep tools and a whole array of enterprise-grade data handling systems. Mm -hmm. So we froze work on the previous reports, and all of our efforts went into building these new reports and the Tableau interface. We worked with our corporate champions and with the data consumers and created a report that everybody was really excited about that brought all the pieces together that was a much more efficient way to view the information. So when you say efficient, was it faster Was it, uh, or was it still subject to a lot of those hurdles trying to get everything together? It was much faster. We were able to pull off, you know, or at least the plan was that we were going to be pulling off of uh, one major data source. That data source was going to be uh, quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we looked at maintaining the uh, Excel-based reports, you know, each time we made a change, we had to go through, check all the pieces, the uh, formulas that were in there, do a manual refresh, um, and then share that out. In this how case, you would end up How many hours of work with, was that? When you did the Excel, how many hours was that for any change or any, you know, like let's say they changed page names or something? So we would often end up spending 10 to 20 hours making changes on reports, particularly if it touched on a number of different reports. If you were looking at a single report and a single page name change, you know, we might be looking at, you know, five to 10 hours of labor on somebody's part to figure it out. But even worse than that is oftentimes the changes weren't communicated. So we'd end up discovering that it was broken because somebody would call up and say, hey, my report isn't working. What is this thing? And so we would end up you know, having to scramble behind the scenes because you know, someone in IT changed the way that a piece was being handled, and there was no you know, communication down about that. Yep, yep, got it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was, that was always a bit of a challenge. And, of course, you're trying to build people's faith in the data. So when they see something that comes through broken like that, it raises questions about the credibility of the whole process. So, you know, we were always quick to make sure that we knew what was happening and that we got that updated. But that's um, an excellent point. It's a a major challenge. Yeah, having faith in the data is an excellent point. People will not take action if they don't believe the numbers. And even when the numbers are right, it can be hard to get people to take action. Right. If it doesn't say what I want it to say, then 
I'm not sure that that's quite exactly the right data. You know, it's, um, <laughs> if it's not backing up the preconceived notions or the theories about things. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you moved into Tableau. Then what happened? Yeah, we built this front end. Everybody was excited to go. And then we discovered that the back end was running behind schedule, that they hadn't gotten all the tables built. They were still working on um, ingesting and processing the data into a Hadoop system that we were going to be hitting to actually populate the front end. So we were kind of at, a, at an impasse. We'd stopped working on the old systems. The new systems were ready to go. except We didn't have any data to feed into it. So after discussing it with our stakeholders and um, champions, it felt like, you know, essentially we had a group of people that were lined up outside of our new restaurant hungry for data, and we needed to open the doors. And so despite the fact that we didn't have our main data set, what we did is scramble to build a new um, kind of comprehensive data set that encompassed about nine different Excel spreadsheets, a bunch of them pulling in data from different data connector sources, and then a couple that would process and format those into tables that we could use to populate the front end. Mm. It was a Herculean effort to get that done, but it, <laughs> it worked. It was also very, um, it was very fragile, so, and it was very labor-intensive. Each of those seven data polls had to be done in a consecutive order. Then we had to go through and do the you know, updates on the main Excel sheet, and there was a, a manual component to each of those steps. And if any of those steps failed or got out of order, then you essentially had to start back over again and, and try to rebuild it. And you wow. had to make sure that everything was right once you did pull it in. So obviously not an ideal situation, but it allowed us to start cooking. Essentially, I, I think we were working with a whole stack of omelet stations trying to serve that restaurant while we waited for them to get the kitchen spun up. Yeah, like a bunch That's of like a, kind of a brigade of camp stoves. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, that that's and, and then so when you previously had maybe twenty hours per Excel report, now what were you operating on in terms of time to get all that data together? Our weekly time on updating that because at that point we were updating them on a weekly basis was probably thirty to forty hours a week. It was spread out over a variety of people and different teams that were uh, responsible for you know pulling and QAing and the data and, and getting it linked into the system. But it was, uh, it was not a minor effort, and you know, we were all walking on eggshells because it was very fragile, and, and we were just waiting for something to, to snap. And, of course, it's getting a lot of scrutiny because this is just launched. It's, you know, we've got our people that are um, excited about the new data. They're in there trying to really dig into it, and the last thing in the world we wanted was to have it you know, break down, not be available. You know, we wanted them to, to really embrace this, and it was going to be critical for you know, the, the long-term adoption of the system. But again, this was a Band-Aid, you know, it was, it was the brigade was. of camp stoves. I love how you think about the camp stove analogy in order to get to what would be like a gourmet cooking station. If you'd had the right tool in place, it wouldn't have been so fragile or, or as labor intensive, I imagine. Exactly, exactly. So eventually they did get everything hooked up, connected, and, and working. And so we had this great data set. They opened the kitchen for us and we were able to dive in there, get that connected up. And then once that happened... Essentially, the system ran itself. We did some QA work to make sure everything was flowing smoothly, but we had a regular ingestion of digital data that was being brought in, processed, and dropped into tables on a daily basis. We had information that was being pulled from transactional systems. So we ended up with one great data source in one place that we could pull from to do all this, and it was automated. We were basically leveraging 
all the powers of Hadoop at the time to pull that stuff in for us and take that labor off. So once it was in place, you know, we didn't really have a lot to do aside from periodic QA and maintenance and upgrades to it as questions and things came in. Do you think the Band-Aid stage was just necessary to proving to people or showing people what could come from the data? Or the I think the Band-Aid stage? stage was really, uh, so the Camp Stove stage, building up to it really was. If we had jumped in and tried to build this giant system from the get-go, people wouldn't have been ready for it. It would have been a huge outlay for a very unknown response. People didn't need the level of data that we were pulling initially. They had to get comfortable with it. They had to learn how to use the data, how to start asking questions, um, and and how to really leverage that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So starting out at that camp stage made a lot of sense as we were bringing people up and educating them about that. But then, you know, as they got more advanced in their use of data, it really became necessary to move to something that was more scalable. Yeah, that makes sense. I think we often ignore the cultural impact of data. You know, you can put great tools down, but there's still a cultural response where people have to develop an understanding, know what they're looking at, start taking action, and then relying on the data. You know, from a technical perspective, it's easy to think about pinning all this stuff together and then, you know, wow, you'll have everything you need. But yet, if the people who are using the data don't know how to cook in the first place, you end up with... a lot of kids in the kitchen. <laughs> Don't touch the yeah, stove. <laughs> yeah, that, for sure. And, and we find that in a lot of cases, you know, if people aren't ready for it, it's easy to overwhelm them. And then they'll either become defensive because, you know, it's like, I don't know what this stuff is. And it's kind of calling my professional credibility into question. Or they just <laughs> kind of throw up their hands and say, yeah, I'm going to keep doing it the old way. It was easier. So we exactly. had to sort of step people through that process of getting comfortable with the data, give them things that are going to answer specific questions that they really have at the moment. And as they get comfortable with that, you just keep feeding more and more into that. I think we went through about five iterations on a lot of these reports before we got out of the camp stove phase. Wow. Um, And and I think it was really necessary to, to go through that process to move people along because they really, you know, at the initial stages were not used to data at all. They were used to making gut instinct decisions and what I think is best. And I really like that. So let's go. Mm-hmm. To the point where we were able to really look at it and say, if I pull this lever, this happens, mm-hmm. and start to really drive by the numbers. Yep, yep, makes perfect sense. Well, this is a lot of effort to put in. Was there any specific ROI impact on this project? So I'd say direct ROI initially was really minimal. It's more of a long-term scale. It was building the capabilities to continue to lead the industry into the future. Mm-hmm. And so... We spent a lot up front trying to get this into place. And I guess one of the pieces that's challenging about that is, you know, where do you credit that? Is it the IT infrastructure, the fact that they added a Hadoop system that pulled all their data together for everybody that was using data? Was it that because people were asking better questions and starting to use the data? Was it just that the executives were really focusing in this area and so people were stepping up to the plate more because of all the scrutiny that was going on? You know, it's hard to know which of those things was the driver, and probably not any given one of them was. You have a bunch of different confounding pieces that are you know, either improving or holding back the process, and it's really hard to separate out what those are. So attributing direct ROI to a specific initiative like this gets to be pretty challenging, at least in the short term. 
I can see how that would be a challenge. And I think in most cases, the whole ROI angle is it's incredibly difficult when you're at the very beginning of the curve. You know, you want to throw in a piece of technology and immediately see the ROI. But your point about it being short term versus a long term view is really, it's really well taken in the same way that, you know, a cook doesn't become a gourmet overnight. If you're just learning to use the microwave, your microwave dinner might not have the same ROI as your professional cooking school output. Yeah, I mean, this was a five-year-plus initiative to get where we were going with that. Imagine if you were in college and you were a junior and you decided to, you know, what's the ROI of staying in school? And you started looking at that from, like, the immediacy of it. How much am I bringing in now because I'm in school? Mm -hmm. Then, you know, that's really kind of a fallacy because you know that by completing your degree, you're going to get long-term benefits. Yet a lot of companies approach it from that perspective. Well, we're two years into a five-year process. Where's that return on investment that we wanted? And so seeing it at that point, there's a tendency to pull back. And that's why I think a lot of companies get trapped in inertia. They don't make it forward because they're looking at the short-term ROI. They're looking for those immediate gains when really what they're doing is building capabilities that are going to give them those long-term gains and, and competitive advantages down the road. So when we say short-term, long-term, what are we talking about in terms of time? Well, like I said, this was typically a five-year process formally that we were With going through. With a large and Fortune 500 company. Yeah, and it, and it yeah. wasn't a, um, you know, and that was essentially to shift them over to a culture of data, to get them starting to think about data instead of, you know, shooting from the hip, which had got them a long ways, you know, what if we really know what our customers are doing, where they want to go, what they want to buy, how they want to buy it, what frustrates them? Um, if we know all those things, we can focus our energy in the right places and really make a better experience and improve the the perception of the brand, pursue, per, improve the purchasing of products, and basically make everything flow more smoothly for the customer and more profitably for us. Um, you know, so the five-year mark was sort of a, and now we're at the starting line. Um, that was the, the point where we were, you know, getting people moved from my data is I know how much I'm supposed to sell and I know how much I sold to actually having, um, you know, fast data that tells me if, I, if I'm pulling these levers, what's actually happening with that. If I run this sale... How are people responding? Is it, is it working the way I think it's going to work or are people ignoring it or is it having some sort of a negative impact? Mm -hmm. and, and being able to um, view those things and, and react quickly really made a, a huge difference for the company. But, you know, the first portion of it was really getting their degree. It was building those capabilities that then allowed them to move forward in a more competitive way. Yeah, got it, got it. So let's say that I've decided that I'm, I'm going to build out the features of my customer data collection kitchen. What should I do first? How should I, how should I move forward? I think there's really three critical steps, and a lot of times these get overlooked. But the first is plan your menu. Know what it is that you're going to do with the data down the road. I think in a lot of cases, companies go through and, and it may be driven by IT. Somebody in, in the executive side says, we need to have a data lake. We need to be able mm -hmm. to get to all of our data at once. And so somebody in IT sits down and they make a plan and they build out this large data pool. But nobody sat down and said, okay, what are we going to ultimately try to do with this? Are you going to do personalization? Are we going to try to sharpen our marketing skills? Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's a whole range of things that we can do once we understand our customer data. 
But if we don't plan what we're going to be delivering, then we aren't going to be able to design a kitchen that's going to allow us to do that effectively. Got it. So got I think it. you so really have to sit down yeah, yeah. And, and just make that plan and move on. Got it. Okay, so, so step one is plan your menu. What's step two? Step two is design your kitchen. Now that you know what you're going to cook, do you need a wok or a deep fat fryer or a grill? <laughs> <laughs> you can certainly add your data based on what it is that you're going to be producing so that you can make sure that when we say we want to do personalization, you don't get the answer, huh, really? Okay, well, our data doesn't do that. But we could start a new initiative that would move us there within a couple of years. Instead, you know that that was where you were moving. That was on the roadmap. And you can start to build out your kitchen designed for that. How many people are going to be in the kitchen? Are you a modest size company with a team of tight data scientists that are going to be working on this? Or are you planning mm -hmm. to democratize the data or tie it out to a variety of automated systems? Once you kind of know where you're going with that, you can, you know, who's going to be working with the data, what it is that you're going to be producing, then you can design your kitchen. If you look you know, at cloud-based computing, that makes yeah. it a lot easier these days than it used to be, but mm -hmm. it still requires some planning to get there. Yeah, it does. And you know, what's interesting about the whole design your kitchen is I watched the movie The Founder a little while ago, and they talked about the McDonald's process and how long it used to be when you would go into a drive through and you'd wait, 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 and finally get your order and maybe it was right, maybe it wasn't. And a lot of that had to do with the design and layout of the kitchen. And they showed this scene of the founders of McDonald's actually on a basketball court with a bunch of chalk and having their employees walk through making different things and they did erase a line and they'd put in something else. I mean, they didn't get it right the first time. They had to figure out the right flow for what they were making. And then they knew when the order came in for the hamburger that they were ready and they needed certain ad hoc processes like calling out that they were moving from place to place so that they didn't run into each other. It was a fascinating look at the architecture that goes behind any smooth process, whether it's cooking a hamburger or whether it's cooking up data insights. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you've got a lot of different systems out there. You've got perhaps a transactional system that's capturing information coming in from your e-commerce system or your brick and mortar stores. It's feeding information to finance. It's feeding information into supply chain, perhaps. Now you want it to do something else entirely. You want to be able to feed back through so that you can understand what a customer bought previously, but do it in real time. So you show up and I know that you previously bought these products and you returned this product and this is the size that you actually ended up with in the end. If you want to build a system that does that, now you're suddenly messing around with other people's data, you know, finance. They want to make sure that everything is still flowing the way they need it. Supply chain needs their piece. So now you're adding additional capabilities on there. So if you don't do this with forethought and consideration, you may end up with a lot of political pushback, people mm -hmm. who want to protect their data and they don't have the resources or want to take the time that's going to be required to really port this stuff into a more useful situation for somebody else because it's mm -hmm. a change to the way they've been doing business. Yeah, got it. Okay, so step one was plan your menu. Step two was design your kitchen based on your menu. And what's step three? Finally, step three is know what's in your pantry. And that is if you're digging into your spice cabinet and nothing has a label on it, you might get by by popping open the lid and, and sniffing things and, and, you know, kind of picking and choosing. But it's probably not going to be your best work. So what if you do that with data? If you don't know where your data is or what your data is, you're going to have a lot of problems. That's really sort of the first level of this is how do you make sure that people know where they need to turn to get the right stuff? 
And that's really documentation and governance issue. But the second piece applies more granularly to, you know, you're working with customers. How do you know who that customer is? A lot of our data is anonymous, at least on the digital side. But at the transactional side, we know who somebody specifically is. You need to pin those two pieces together in some way so that you can suddenly know this is customer X. Even if they're not authenticated, there's some different ways that you can go about doing that. And I think that's a critical piece. The more you can move to knowing and understanding who each customer is along the way, the more you can reduce the anonymous sort of aggregate information that you have, the better you're going to do at really leveraging this for useful purposes. So does that mean um, that I might have six cans of cinnamon in the cupboard with different ways of processing, like I've got cinnamon sugar and I've got regular cinnamon and I've got cinnamon sticks, and they're all cinnamon, but they're not necessarily the right tool for the job. Is that the kind of approach that we have with data? I've got different flavors of the same thing? Or even you've got the same, you know, that, that is definitely one piece of it, but what if you have six jars of actual cinnamon taking up space in your cupboard? And really, which one do you all pull the exact from? same thing. <laughs> which one do you pull from and why do I really need six of those? What you really want to do is go, oh, hey, all six of these are cinnamon. Let's put them into one bottle and, mm-hmm. and move from there. And that's, you know, that's one of the challenges. We've got people that are working on mobile devices. They're coming from work. They're coming from home. I'm the same person. I'm the same shopper. But I'm showing up as three different uh, um, bottles of unknown information or possibly three different known bottles. But, you know, how how do you consolidate and bring that together so that you really have a usable data set that you know that I'm me, whether I'm at work, whether I'm at home, whether I'm on my phone on the bus. Well, that is a huge topic in itself that maybe we can follow up on because uh, the whole crispness of who are you and how do we identify you is just a, that's, that's very challenging and definitely an area of growth online where we're seeing more and more data sets merge together. So maybe we'll, we'll consider that for a future show because I know a lot of people would probably like to hear more about that. So let's, uh, let's move into summarizing and wrap up our show for today. Well, first we talked about why does the foundation matter? You know, of course, the foundation is where the initial listening signals are captured. So without good equipment to create that solid data foundation, you might as well be cooking on a camp stove, right? You can do it, but the competition to nab the best customers is really becoming fiercer, faster. So get in the game, get the right equipment, get going. Second, what kind of impact can you get? We talked about this, and I think the impact in the foundational layers is very minimal because as we talked about, Lauren, the time period that we're looking at is oftentimes years. And like the foundation of a house or of a kitchen, you've got to have the right pieces in place before you can cook up a great meal. The stronger the foundation, the tastier the meal, meaning the more insights you'll get in the long run, right? Takes time. I got to agree. Yep. Okay. So finally, you know, we talked about the three steps, but, you know, let's say that what if I don't trust my data at all? You know, if I'm really at the beginning of the foundation, then it's high time to get your digital house in order. I always think the website is a very rich analysis place to begin. It's filled with lots of customer behavior, even if there's no checkout or conversion. So one possibility to get started can be to ask for an audit of your website. There's a tool that I use a lot 
and I often recommend it's called Observe Point, which has a really nice crawler that can help you do this. And they even cover apps, you know, like we were talking about, there's lots of different sources of data. And I'll include that on our podcast page. Lauren, are there other tools from your reporting example that you would recommend that kind of, you know, somebody should have in their initial kitchen? You should definitely have somebody that has that ability to see what's actually happening. I've run into a lot of situations where you're trying to instrument a site or an app and you think it's right, but you don't know. And so the data that's flowing through is either not arriving or it's coming in funky. So something like a proxy tool, a packet sniffer, can be a really handy piece to add to your team's repertoire. What, what um, would be some names of those tools that we can add to So I would look at Charles and Fiddler are two of the versions that I use. There's actually some ways that you can do sort of a quick and dirty version of it with Chrome just by going into your developer tools and looking at your network traffic that's going on. I would also encourage a manual audit. You run through with ObservePoint. It's a great tool and it tells you where everything's happening. But then what you want to know is, am I actually getting what I think I'm getting in each of the places? And that's where it needs somebody that's got background in both analysis and enough of a technical bent that they can go through and look at it and say, here's what you intended to do. Here's what's actually happening. These Mm. pieces are working fantastic. Good point. This piece over here, there's some best practices that we should follow that we could make this a lot stronger for us. And on the reporting side, and we talked about Excel as a reporting tool, there's a plethora of new reporting tools coming out. But are there any tools that you'd recommend, you know, for knitting data together when you're trying to combine multiple sources? Yeah, for, you know, if you're at sort of the, um, the camp stove to home cooking stage, possibly even a larger stage, you can leverage Google's Data Studio. It's a fairly new tool that's out there, but it's got the ability to connect to and bring in a lot of data from different sources. I'm a big fan of Alteryx. Alteryx allows you to connect up and easily manipulate data, build data tables, export them out to a variety of different formats. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really fantastic way to pull in, you know, it, first off, it, it allows you to do a lot of data cleaning um, and then formatting and then your manipulation and output. And so it's, it's a really useful tool that you don't have to be a Python programmer to run. And, and you can push uh, it right into Tableau too, right? You can push it directly into Tableau. You can push it into other data sources and you know, tie your Tableau piece into that. Yeah. You could push it together into a table and throw something like Looker on top of it. So it's just a powerful tool for knitting those pieces together. And it's probably the commercial kitchen version of the data management. If you would say Data Studio might be your kind of home kitchen approach. Mm -hmm. Perfect, perfect. So we'll link to all of those tools on the podcast page, which as always is on www.ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Lauren, I want to thank you again for being our guest today. I really appreciate you coming in. It's really great to have you and hear all your stories. Yeah. Yeah. Bottom line, when you use your data effectively, you can build long-term customer equity. This is not magic. It's a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short 
bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.